0: From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you.
1: Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Ladies and
2: gentlemen, the Beaumont Lecture um, is an occasional lecture which honors um, Major Kenneth Beaumont, CBE, DSO, MA, Oxon, and uh, a former fellow of this society. Uh, Beaumont was the UK's most prominent name in air law after starting as technical advisor to Imperial Airways in the 1920s uh, and was the founder of uh, the eponymous aviation law firm Beaumont & Son. Uh, It gives me immense pleasure uh, to welcome Robert Webb QC, a fellow of the Society, to deliver the ninth Beaumont Lecture. Uh, Rob, as many of you know, will know him as, retires from his role as General Counsel of BA at the end of this month, uh, although he will no doubt continue to have fun teasing his colleagues on the boards of the BBC, Stock Exchange, and London First, and indeed may otherwise be available, he tells me, if the terms are right. But the the delivery by Rob of a Beaumont lecture at the end of his full-time legal career is very appropriate. after a relatively short career practicing before the divorce and criminal courts as a junior barrister or a baby barrister as Rob used to term himself, Robert came to the attention of Sean Gates of Messrs Beaumont and Son and an illustrious career as the aviation barrister and later the aviation QC was born. And so delivery by Rob of the Beaumont lecture as he leaves the law completes a circle and what a circle. Uh, from Goldman and Thai Airways in 1983 in the Court of Appeal, through Holmes and Bangladesh Beeman before the House of Lords in 1989, uh, through Sidhu and British Airways in 1997, again before the House of Lords, Robert has fashioned aviation legal history with a sense of humor that has belied a very serious intent. And in 2005, even after leaving the bar and becoming BA's general counsel, Rob's delight in danger led him to lure the claimants in the DVT litigation up from the Court of Appeal to the House of Lords where Robert, appearing extraordinarily as client and counsel, emerged victorious for the airlines and for their insurers. Robert, Major Beaumont would be amused uh, and as delighted as we are to welcome you here this evening, ladies and gentlemen, Robert Webb QC.
0: Thank you very much. This is very ridiculous. I didn't realize you'd all been my mates um, showing up. I was sort of imagining an audience of strangers. I can't possibly tell uh, you guys anything you don't know. And I can't make the speech I was going to make, because apparently it's recorded and goes out online. And um, no speech I've ever made is suitable to go out online. So I'll uh, deliver some fairly serious and straightforward messages, and then on the Q&A we will revert to normal uh, service. I can't uh, um, pass over the uh, House of Lords DVT case without thanking Tony Mednick for taking the enormous risk of instructing a House barrister to do a case in the House of Lords. Um, it was a brave thing to do. He gave me three cases of clarity, didn't have to pay a fee, which I suppose might have helped a bit, but uh, it was certainly scary for him. And. Uh, My principal memory of it was going to Eden Ravenscroft to get a wing collar and I went to the usual box full of 15 and a half wing collars and came out with a wing collar of size 19 uh, (laughs) after uh, only four years in corporate life. Uh, Thank you for coming. I'm the only thing that stands between myself and a drink. So (laughs) I think uh, we can probably keep it quite short. Uh, Uh, My last tribute is to Harold Kaplan, who gave this lecture in 1997, is still here uh, listening to this one. Thank you, Harold, and welcome, and thank you for making the effort. Major Beaumont. Major Beaumont was born in 1884, and so was a Victorian. He was 13 at the time of Queen Victoria's Jubilee, which was the apotheosis, in my view, of our empire. 50,000 troops marched on St Paul's, And the Daily Mail wrote, How many millions of years has the sun stood in heaven, but the sun never looked down until yesterday on so much energy and power? Can this be the same Daily Mail, about which I'd have had a bit more to say if we weren't online, um, (laughs) uh, be the same organ as now attacks judges in their beds and frightens the horses generally? and how surprised Major Beaumont would be to see the nation apparently welcome the fact that its sister paper, The Evening Standard, was sold by the English aristocracy for a pound to a Russian oligarch who apparently formed his affection for England and the free press while working for the KGB at the London station, and who has said that the defining difference between the old Evening Standard and the new one is that there is going to be a spirit of optimism in it. Welcome oligarchs, that is what we need. I think um, Major Beaumont would also have been surprised to know that I looked him up on the internet and indeed on uh, Wikipedia which is the modern equivalent, rarely, of Shawcross and Beaumont. Absolutely everything is in there but you can't be quite sure whether it's right or not. (laughs) Uh, But I did learn um, that his DSO was earned in 1918 for his help in the capture of Jerusalem. And like a lot of battles, you find you're fighting it, but then when you won it, you decide what to do with the spoils. And I thought the most interesting news item of last week was David Robertson's story in The Times that Emirates is taking the Airbus A380 off the Dubai to New York route. Emirates have got more than 50 Airbus 380s on order from Airbus, but if they don't work on New York, Dubai, some thinking is going to have to be done. Perhaps small is going to be beautiful once again. What are they going to do with the other 56 Airbuses? And who is going to finance them if no one wants them? And what are Airbus going to do if they can't make them? So we have to hope for a bit of an upturn. So that just as the capture of Jerusalem looked like an essential at the time, the years since have shown the advantages, and this, as in other deals, of good post-match planning. I learned also, although I did already know this, I was just testing Wikipedia, that he would refocused his grandfather's firm, which had been going since 1836 to become a specialist in aviation accidents after the Imperial Airways accident in 1924 on Christmas Eve. He made it the first and the finest airline firm in the world for many generations. Today it exists still and is still strong and robust enough to host the drinks reception which follows this short lecture. <laughs> and no doubt why so many of you are here. <laughs> it was uh, Lord Nathan, a member of the then government, who asked Major Beaumont to attend as the United Kingdom's member of citeja the forerunner of today's ICAO. He did so on behalf of the government in these terms. We understand that you know more about international aspects of air law than we do at the Ministry. In these circumstances, would you be prepared to attend some meetings on our behalf? Just compare the Olympic courtesy of that approach with the rather dogmatic anxious form shown by later less confident but more contemporary governments. They adopt a much more bossy tone than that, and I've never had a letter saying we understand that you know more about international aspects of air law than we do at the Ministry, and if I ever do, I'll give another of these lectures. He was, Major Beaumont, a champion figure skater and a judge at the World Championships, and he was president of the Royal Philatelic Association, presumably from all the stamps he got from overseas correspondence. He also lived until he was past 80, so he must have been one of the great Victorian polymaths, and it's a pleasure to pay tribute to his work and to his memory, and I hope we do so not by using the language of the past, but by adopting the same confident tone about the future that the Victorians adopted. Self-doubt and carping is one of the characteristics of our generation. It's not only Poms, but it's still mainly Poms. It was not so for the Victorians. But I must return, as every speaker must eventually return, to the subject which I've said I'll address, the life of scheduled airlines in Britain. And I will start with the no-frills carriers, or the low-cost carriers, as they like to style themselves. They're not necessarily low-cost by the time you've taken a taxi to the station, taken a train to Stansted, paid a bit extra for your golf clubs, and hurried across the tarmac to get a good seat. By that time, you're happy to pay £5 for your coffee, but I wouldn't recommend it if, as is rumoured, you have to pay a pound to go to the toilet. If it is, as I think it is, unlawful to charge people to go to the toilet, I understand that the suggestion now is that passengers would have to pay to get out. Um, (laughs) There are two problems with this, uh, which I shall be writing to Ryanair about. The first is that it's contrary to the age discrimination laws. The very young and the very old might have to pay two or three times, even on quite a short flight. And it would also give rise to the practical question as to whether anyone would pay to leave the toilet on a Ryanair flight. given uh, the alternatives outside. I mean, once you've got a comfortable seat, there's no real reason, I would have thought, uh, to leave it. So we shall continue to debate this through the pages of the appropriate organs. But uh, the uh, no-frills carriers are one of the great success stories of British aviation in the last decade, just as charter flights were the unsung heroes of the 1970s allowing the UK to colonise Spain, and British uh, originating traffic to holiday all over the continent. Something like 90% of the traffic was British originating, which was an extraordinary achievement for an industry. And many of those tasteful developments on the Costa del Skin Cancer would never have taken place without the UK charter industry. One of my earliest tasks as a young aviation lawyer was to keep the charter airlines out of the Channel Islands, this was ostensibly done to protect the year-round quality of the scheduled service, which was said to be of great value to the residents. We always successfully argued it on that basis, but I just always had the uneasy feeling that there was some collateral point about class which nobody ever made and everyone thought. And sure enough, we did keep the charters out of Jersey, and the uh, bedsits and the guesthouses of Jersey remain almost to this day unsullied and uh, unoccupied. The- LAUGHTER But the key uh, to the success of these carriers, apart from the obvious entrepreneurship of those involved, is the lack of regulation and the lack of prohibition, the adequacy of the air transport infrastructure and the arrival of the internet. I'll take them in turn. The European Union's third liberalization package allowed anyone to fly anywhere to anywhere else within Europe, outside the main hubs. There is thus no opportunity cost If a route makes money, you can fly it. You don't have to give up one route in order to fly another and trade on the differentials, as we do at Heathrow. There is adequate infrastructure. The Second World War left all participants with airports all over Europe. Airports actually pay airlines to go to their towns and fly. State aid complaints were made after Charleroi paid Ryanair to set up a base there. And a northern airport is this very week suing Be by Baby for allegedly not honouring a ten-year agreement to base a couple of aircraft on its tarmac when they'd been paid large sums of money to do just that. If you contrast that with the fact that slots at Heathrow are changing hands at in excess of $20 million a pair, it shows something about market forces. And the reason for that isn't widely understood, and I will return to it. But would you pay to go on holiday to a place that paid you to go there even Sybil Fawlty used to charge the Major something. So some of these places must be worse than Torquay. I shall return, as I say, to this topic. Thirdly, the net. There are no fare buckets anymore. No 26 different fares you can choose. You can price each seat in real time to fill the plane. The dear old Saturday night stopover, which used to define allowable fare categories and was not the name of a young lady in Malaga, has disappeared Uh, It's as much part of a ticket, part of history as the printed ticket or the unmovable bulkhead. But it's important to remember that the no-frills market has a number of characteristics. Firstly, it's beginning to look like a mature market in some cities, certainly Dublin, certainly London. It is all short-haul. It is all point-to-point. It is a simple asset allocation model. An entrepreneur can thus price the route, cost the assets used to fly it, and decide whether to make money or not. This works at Gatwick, Stansted, Luton, Liverpool, Manchester and so on. It doesn't work at Heathrow. Heathrow is a different business model. Aircraft and passengers are pretty much all it has in common. Heathrow is a hub airport. And this means much more than it's just a busy airport or that an airline is based there. You often hear the phrase hub airport banged around. Hub airport is a term of art. It means that it's a place where people come, not just for its own sake, as they would go to London City or somewhere like that, but to go on somewhere else. As Don Carter used to say of the hub system, when I die I don't know whether I'm going to heaven or hell, but sure as hell I know I'm going through Dallas-Fort Worth. (laughs) And that is uh, the best single line description of what a hub is for, uh, that there is. So a hub is a way of collecting passengers in order to consolidate them, so that there are sufficient of them to justify putting on a long-haul flight to a destination which can then be served, either at all or more frequently. These guys are called transfer passengers and they're at the heart of a greatly misunderstood political debate. The fact is, they are vital for the success of a hub airport. It is quite wrong to say they are not worth the price of a cup of tea. That misunderstands, fundamentally misunderstands the hub model. And. When proponents of the existing regulatory regime, if there are any, argue for the benefits of regulating airports as a system, they seem to overlook the fact that the business models of these airports are completely different. I'm going to, unusual departure for me, show you some slides. I don't normally do this because they go wrong and my children say I look like a panda approaching a feeding system. But first of all, uh, I'm going to show you the size of industry we're dealing with by showing you, I hope, just the aircraft movements of a busy day in and out of the UK as long ago as 2002. Matt? Just knowing Matt's here does it. That's what the skies look like on a busy day. It's a remarkable industry. It's not surprising we can all make a living out of it. But uh, they don't hit each other. They don't crash. They fly in safety. They fly in comfort. And they're doing that every day of the year. And every one of you guys is playing uh, a critical part in that. And if you saw the equivalent for ships, you'd see a smaller picture. But I'm going to talk a bit about the hub at Heathrow. (coughs) Some of you will know this chart. It's one of my favourites. It's the top ten European airports in 1990. We were second. The number of destinations served is in the column on the right, so Frankfurt was serving 254 uh, destinations. We were serving 221. And the difference between the green and the red is the before competition laws invented what we used to call the dominance of the hub carrier. We now call it restricted market share. Um, but that's what it uh, looked like uh, in 1990. Go on to 2000, and you see what Johnny Foreigner has been doing behind our backs. <laughs> He's been constructing very large airports uh, and increasing the share of his national champion carrier, and generally building up some pretty big hubs. And when you bear in mind that Frankfurt, which is there on the right there, is a town about the same size as Yeovil, uh, and you uh, look at the size of Heathrow, you think, well, we're obviously getting this about right, um, because much more people would like to go to um, Frankfurt than they would to London. Ask any BA member of staff where they'd rather be. Uh, this is next year that's what the story is going to be Frankfurt doing 300 destinations, Charlegold 302, Amsterdam 290 Heathrow serving uh, 172 so that's what we are doing to London that's what is being done to BA, and this is as, back as, to, as far as 2005, daily departures by Hub and Spoke Airlines at major hubs. In Atlanta, 966 flights, and 77% of the airport scheduled total. Paris Air France KLM, 378, 61% of the share airport scheduled total. Heathrow, BA, 276 and 43%. Talk about busiest airport in the world and so on, you've got to define your terms pretty carefully to make any of that stuff uh, stick. Now, if you are a, um, let me try and go back one. Suppose you're just a huge Chinese industrialist or you're a Midwestern American firm who haven't traveled much and you're saying we need a base in Europe. You don't know what Frankfurt's like, you don't know what Heathrow's like, But by and large, you go for mainland Europe. These are transfer passengers. I've put Aberdeen at the top because I've got a house there, and it's a route I'm very anxious to protect. Uh, But you will see. I thought I'd say that in case one of you questioners said, because you all know me, I keep forgetting. 46% of Aberdeen passengers are transferring on, uh, so you can sustain 13 flights a day. They're going on to the oil routes all over America. If you look at Manchester, 74 percent transfer passengers, 17 flights a day. If that hub did not exist, those services from Manchester wouldn't exist, and all kinds of people have tried to fly long-haul from Manchester and Glasgow and so on, and it fails because the business isn't there and critically the premium business isn't there. The hub model is the only way that we can get UK PLC access to the world unless you want to push it over Amsterdam, Frankfurt and Paris, which is perfectly okay as long as you don't care about business centres being built in London, restaurants being built in London, conferences being held in London. If you don't care about any of that, you can get to where you're going. But if you do care, these figures are quite compelling. I will move on to safety, because safety uh, isn't boring. It's not a taken for granted. Uh, Records aren't getting any better. And Western-built jets flown by scheduled airlines crash only rarely. But the price of safety, like the price of liberty, is eternal vigilance, and I would add to that eternal skill and technological development. When such aircraft do crash now, it's usually for fairly opaque reasons, and I'll talk about the three which have mainly impacted on me personally in the last ten years. And the first was this Air France Concorde crash on the 25th of July 2000. You'll recall that it crashed shortly after takeoff on a flight from Charles de to New York. It's said that a tire burst, allegedly after running over a piece of metal left behind on the runway. The tire hit the piece of metal. It burst and some of the tire hit the wing of Concorde. Everybody knows that fuel poured out all over the engine in large quantities and there were many deaths. The problem was that all the computer runs showed it couldn't happen. Neither the piece of metal nor the piece of tyre had the available velocity to puncture the fuel panel. Eventually it was shown that the blow to the wing had caused the underside of the wing to oscillate, popping out one of the fuel panels There never had been a puncture and that wasn't at all an obvious solution and full marks to the guys who got there. We grounded our Concords immediately but we returned them to service in an amended form. By then times had changed. The era of starlets and conspicuous consumption and David Frost was over. When we re-equipped it, we couldn't initially even use British leather. At that time, the CJD scare was at its height and our research showed a worry that some of the higher fashion bottoms didn't want to sit on British leather at that time. It was an early lesson to me that at $10,000 one way, Passengers could sit on what the hell they liked, uh, and we took out the uh, British leather and put some other stuff in. But when I was at the bar, we were never that keen to please customers. I can tell you it's got some point about the closed shop that I'll make in another lecture at another time. Uh, we could uh, never take uh, Concorde back double daily. You could no longer go to New York for lunch and be back for bedtime. Airbus no longer really wished to support it. Uh, they'd never sold any. And after this, it was all downside risk. I nearly made one of my many catastrophic errors there by thinking we could ring up Air France and say, look, this thing's a dog, why don't we uh, uh, ground it, until it was forcibly pointed out to me by people who understand the law that the monopoly suppliers uh, of a unique product can't agree together to put it on the ground, otherwise everybody goes to prison in the usual way. Uh, So it was um, Airbus uh, who decided that it should go. It was safe, but operational reliability was waning and punctuality was suffering. At that price, and indeed at any price, those things are important, and its days were past. It was an old aircraft, and we said goodbye to it with great sadness, and it caused much heartache uh, in the company, and I think in the country at large. I'm often asked if we can keep one and fly it at air shows, if only for the boom greatly enjoyed by enthusiasts. Uh, The sad answer is no. This is no friendly old Spitfire. Uh, This is a supersonic jet, um, not suitable for the occasional bank holiday run. The next incident I haven't got a slide for, but it had a dramatic effect. It was the BA-269 on its way from Gatwick to Nairobi when a Kenyan national opened the cockpit door and wrestled the controls away from Captain Bill Hagen. He took the aircraft through more than 90 degrees uh, before he was restrained, using that word in the wider sense. Um, Calmness and training saved the day, but the flight deck was never accessible after that, as it had been before. So every one of these incidents takes a little freedom. And we have seen that very dramatically, very recently. Lastly, there was our own BA038, which is still the subject of an investigation. But we do know that on the 17th of January 2008, a 777 with Rolls-Royce engines arriving at Heathrow from Beijing lost thrust in both engines when the commanded power fell short of what was necessary to reach the runway and the aircraft landed on the grass short of the runway. It was an astonishing investigation, because the AIB, who are one of the best, most specialist and unbiased investigating authority in the world, had all the data. And they have no political agenda, the AIB. You can't say that of all investigating authorities, but you can of ours. They had the crew, they had the data recorder, they had the passengers and they had the hull. This was no Air India, Kanishka, nor a Pan Am Lockerbie. It wasn't under 7,000 foot of water, and it hadn't broken up, and there hadn't been a fire. But the more we investigated, nobody could believe the accident had occurred at all. It just didn't happen. But you only had to look out of the window um, to see that it had. Eleven months later, an apparently similar rollback, as they called it, occurred on an American-registered airline's 777, also powered by the Trent 895. It now looks as if this has got a lot to do with the behaviour of fuel at very cold temperatures, and the hypothesis is that soft ice might have been released into the fuel feed system of both engines. This is a hitherto largely unknown phenomenon in aviation turbine fuel. But as we say in the law when testing for negligence, because the world is wiser now does not mean that it was foolish before. Behind all these accidents is the lesson that vigilance and expertise are a daily essential, and that's why I make no apology for lecturing about them. The problem of air safety has not gone away. We none of us forget it. Airlines never have and never should compete on safety. Any other carrier's accident is our accident. Not only does this enable us to share data freely between ourselves and with government, if we did compete on safety, it would make it subject to the competition laws of which I have some hard-won experience. Safety data should not be shared, and advertising of safety does no one any good. I'm not sure that comparative advertising is a dignified or effective tool in any event. It seems to downgrade those industries which take part in it, and questions such as who gets there on time, or how many bags per thousand are lost, or which boarding school gets the best A-levels, draw passengers' attention to things that can go wrong, rather than, as we would hope, the things that go right, as most things do, most of the time. One of the reasons I'm not always allowed near customers is I think it's absolutely remarkable to take someone at 500 miles an hour, seven miles across the North Pole in perfect safety and comfort and land them on time. And when you talk to them on the flight deck and you say, is there anything they want to know, they say, yeah, why, well, sandwiches is cold. I say, look, don't you realize what's happening to you? But then I'm taken off by cabin crew who are trained to uh, deal with these things. Uh, allied to safety is security familiar picture. Uh, 9-11 is too much talked about to be dealt with by me here now. I put that dramatic picture up to show I could show you the next one. (coughs) The uh, July bomb plot nearly worked. Had half a dozen American airlines been brought down over the Atlantic Ocean, mostly or entirely by hijackers who were British citizens, that might well have reinforced the view still held in many parts of America, that all foreigners, even us, are somehow suspect. We know that Al-Qaeda don't set much store by anniversaries, but they do return to targets, as previous attempts of a different nature on the World Trade Center showed us. The world's aviation industry will also always be a target because of its history and because of its profile, and any security system is only as good as its weakest link. The Lockerbie bomb, I think, showed us that. A complicit insider, whether in Somalia, Pakistan, Kenya, the United Kingdom or the USA, must never have the ability to penetrate the system. We therefore make no apology for the constant vigilance and for the measures which have to be taken to protect the integrity of the whole system, not just Fred's local airport. But that is not to say that we must disregard proportionality Matching the cure to the disease should be an exercise in risk management, not simply a scorched earth policy or blitzkrieg. So far, the measures taken have worked, and that of itself may be an answer to those who accuse the industry and governments of overreaction. But in a democracy where behaviour is and should be visible, a state is only really as respectable as its penal system, and as the proportionality, uh, and and the proportionality of the response to the attacks which are made on it, and it's also a fairly clear demonstration of its values. It'd be interesting to see if anybody talks about uh, waterboarding Mr. Madoff. I don't think um, they're going to. The uh, I- environment. Oh, I've written in my notes, I'd like to say a word or two about greenhouse gases. Well, I don't really want to say anything about greenhouse gases, but I feel that I should, Um, because uh, the airline industry produces about 2% of the world's emissions, less than shipping, less than the cement industry, less than the IT industry, note that, Matt, but much more visibly. And thus we have become the poster children of the debate. And sometimes I think that not enough tributes are paid to the huge steps made by the aircraft manufacturers and the engine manufacturers to reduce the environmental footprint of their products. Sometimes when I'm talking to people, they think the airline make the engines and make the planes and so on. They don't seem to realize that it's a bus and we drive it. But those guys really have uh, made a difference. The technological advances are vast and continuing. Much less obvious is the success of government in this area. When I say much less obvious, if there are any Americans here, that's irony. I mean, they haven't done enough. Um, (laughs) Let me uh, me give you some examples. About 12% of British Airways short-haul flying is spent zigzagging around the national boundaries within Europe. A single sky to match the political liberalization of the area which I talked about at the start of this lecture would reduce flying routes and times enormously as would some loosening up of the rules forbidding use of airspace destined for the military. Twelve and a half percent. When air passenger duty was introduced, requiring passengers to pay to fly, the duty was wrongly described uh, as an environmental tax. It doesn't appear to have stopped anybody flying, nor, as I understand it, was that its political intent. It was intended to raise money. It did, however, harm the environment in a crucial way. Passengers felt that they had already paid the environmental cost of their flight, and so they felt not only guilt-free, they were less reluctant to contribute to carbon offset schemes. The the United Nations Clean Development Mechanism, which warrants the viability of alternative schemes, is available for all to use. Our carbon offsets at BA are linked to a wind farm in Mongolia, which provides enough otherwise unobtainable energy to power a small town. I have used to produce that line to investors. I used to say our carbon offset tax uh, powers a wind farm in Mongolia which helps a small town get its power and I found I couldn't say it without laughing because uh, it sounded so implausible uh, and anyway what's a wind farming in Mongolia got to do with it so I went at Christmas to see this wind farm and to work out how the clean development mechanism works and it really does work it's a real wind farm it really is an alternative form of energy and it wouldn't be there without our passengers offsets. The last point on the gases, but not the end of this lecture, there's a conclusion. Um, Airline consolidation seems as far away as when I last stood on this podium 10 years ago giving the Sefton-Branker lecture uh, shortly before I left the bar and went to BA. And I forecast then that BA would soon have a joint venture with American Airlines and that consolidation in Europe would have revolved around three major carriers. I feel less confident forecasting that today than I did 10 years ago. protectionism seems to me to be fully on the rise and the intensity of the dialogue really, as so often, masks the inertia behind it. Um, it's worked for the telecom companies, it's worked for the banks, but it's largely prohibited uh, by the imbalances in the aviation industry. This has an environmental cost. It's got too much capacity chasing too few passengers. A full plane is more carbon efficient than an empty one. and so get the load factors up guys here are a few environmental slides this is so obvious to everybody who thinks about these things but it's not obvious to everybody the atmosphere has no preference it does not matter where you emit your CO2 it doesn't matter if it's at Heathrow, at City Airport, at Johnson-on-Thames wherever it is, it's still CO2 uh, going up into the atmosphere China 142 civilian airports to 186 over 10 years including 3 hubs, 7 regional hubs 24 median hubs the guys who lecture and really understand uh, environmental science say the bad news is it's all about China but the good news is it's all about China China has got this point in spades you can't criticise A country which has a one-child policy uh, when you look at the way uh, the West is behaving and we haven't seen a sacrifice remotely approaching that for population or for any other reason. China is opening a nuclear power station coal-fired every 10 days. So uh, what we have to work out is how this is going to be controlled, how it's going to be dealt with, And let's not hope we see another arm of American green protectionism saying unless you do this, that, and the other, uh, we won't trade with you. It could be that the green debate becomes a protectionist debate, but I very much hope it doesn't. CO2 emissions, there's the old A380. 17% less fuel burn per seat than uh, 747-400. The words per seat are quite interesting in that, um, because there are a load of seats on an A380. Um, as uh, Emirates seem to be discovering to their cost. The uh, 787, 30 percent less fuel burn per seat than 767. 787 is delayed. Are we glad it's delayed? Yes, we're glad because we don't have to find the money and we have a whacking great damages claim. Do we wish it was on time? Yes, we did. It's so much more fuel efficient that it would be worth getting. That answer is less true with oil at $40 a barrel than it was with oil at $150 a barrel, but it's still true. But how you cope with an industry where oil goes from $150 to $50 in a year when it's a third of your costs is a remarkable problem uh, because both are bizarrely bad news, Um, not just because of our hedging policy, but generally you can't get any sort of certainty at all. There's a noise footprint. I always show a noise footprint because my first year, no, shortly into BA, uh, I went and received the noise imp- the improvement prize for the most improved airline for- from the noise front from Michael Meacher and he made a speech saying how well we'd done and I shook his hand and took the plaque away. He didn't spot and I didn't tell him. that was the year we had to ground Concord. Um, but, uh, <laughs> such is government's detailed grasp of our industry. But. But that's the noise footprint of the A380 versus the 747-400. When it just comes into Heathrow, and you'll all have heard it by now, it's just a quiet whoosh, absolutely extraordinary. And you will see from from the model of the A380 I put up on the opening slide. At the moment, the A380 is far too short for its power plant. It could be vastly, vastly longer, and will be if that's how the market works. But that's how much people care about the environment. One minute, you can't go out in the street without saying, oh, do you work for an airline? Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to cancel your dinner invitation. To, um, oh, well, we've got the economy to worry about now. Can you come back to CO2 another day? So thank you for listening to me. Uh, I've gone through this lecture unfashionably without mentioning the state of the economy. I thought, in the last slide, I'd show you what's happened to the market capitalisation of our very best companies over the last two years. We run a business which, as I say, depends on these companies, a business where oil's gone, as I say, from 140 to 40, a business where Terminal 5 has been turned from a national disappointment to a mighty and successful treasure, also in a year. And if I'm asked back in another ten years' time, when I'll have spent ten years out of the industry, I hope, I wonder whether I'll be saying the same thing. But look what's happened to our customers, if you think I'm whinging. It's the market capital of those banks in two years. So the good news, because we really have to be optimistic, is that it does look as if the front of the plane is going to be available for retired staff travel.
1: Thank you.
2: From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace,
0: and now to you.
1: Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.